Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, our very own Chris Cervello with an update from the West Conference and Trade Show in uh, what is a sunny but cold San Diego. But first, joining us today is Scott Sloan. He is the president of Stratus Corp, a fast-growing $40 million Norfolk-based company that specializes in IT, logistics, cybersecurity, network operations, and engineering services across DOD uh, and government. Before joining uh, the company in January, Scott was at a big firm, Accenture Federal Services, where he was the managing director for Armed Forces Growth and Strategy. He is also a former United States Navy submariner uh, and graduate from the United States Naval Academy, uh, class of 2001. Scott, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, great uh, to have you on. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security, as I mentioned, not only uh, sponsors our weekly cyber report, but our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air warfare uh, coverage and our weekly air power uh, podcast. Uh, Scott, uh, thanks so very much uh, again. We, we focus a lot on innovation uh, on this program. We have a tendency of talking a little bit more on the hardware uh, side of the equation. Yesterday, we had Sabre Horn from BMNT uh, aboard uh, talking about how to drive innovation faster and why it's not necessarily always about technology. It's really about people uh, often and, and how you manage them. Um, and, and we heard a couple months ago from Lee Madden of Epirus, right, talking about the challenge that, look, Sibbers, uh, our contracts are great, but at some point you are sort of in the valley and you're a tweener and you have to manage uh, the, the, gro the growth. From, from your standpoint, what are the challenges to growth, especially, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the cyber and on the IT and on the services side? Uh, you know, where, where generally we focus on sort of the anderals of the world, right, the technology guys who are trying to bridge that gap. What, what are the unique challenges on the cyber IT and, and services side of the business? Well, I, I think they're multifaceted. And I think, uh, you know, uh, of course, you know, government procurement and the government acquisition cycle, the time to get to market, the, uh, the investment that it takes to get to market, uh, especially as you're a smaller and, and, and growing company, but even as a large company, I mean, it, it takes a lot of money to do business with the U.S. government. And, you know, it, uh, it takes a certain amount of patience and it takes a certain commitment to the mission of the government and the mission of the client to uh, to really have the stomach and to have the patience to get out and and, and get your uh, get your goods out there I've, I've always seen this personally as you know it's a privilege to work in this space and you know whenever you know the the, the firm I'm fortunate to be a part of uh, you know if we have the right answer that's going to bring our sailor soldiers airmen and Marines and guardians home sooner with all their fingers and toes it's our duty to get it to market and to get it in their hands as quickly as possible but we don't have the only vote there. Um, you know, I, I think um, so. Th so there are government challenges on the process, and I think there are folks who are really trying really hard to work in that. Right, there are acquisition shops both on the East Coast and the West Coast with the Navy that are really right. trying to work around the edges of you know it doesn't have to be a huge program of record. We really want to fund multiple pilots of the same thing and have it a real time bake off and. Uh, get to speedier decisions so that we can get to speedier technology transfer. I, I think, you know, honestly, though, industry has to look, our, we have to look ourselves in the mirror and make sure that we're not our own worst enemy from uh, the, again, the, the willingness to invest, but also 
um, you know, spurious protests and that causes risk aversion. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, the bigger organizations that I've been a part of have been more risk averse than the smaller ones. And right. that that's really counterintuitive and, and has always been counterintuitive to me. But, you know, if, if we're, you know, the, the, if the collective we of industry is really dedicated to the mission of our client, then we've got to be out there and be willing to take some risk and meet them halfway uh, to be able to get these uh, these tools out there. You know, I, I do think you have a good point, though, that, you know, technology isn't all it's it, innovation isn't always about technology. Most of the time it's about uh, a willingness to change. And, you know, and that that's on the industry side and that's also on the government side. And I've had conversations with uh, with customers before. They said, are you ready to do this program? And I said, are you ready to do things differently? Because, uh, you know, it, it, it takes two to do this dance and it is a relationship. And, you know, there's not going to be success, however you define it, unless everybody stacks hand and starts rowing in the same direction. Uh, but, you know, th there has to be an understanding of what success looks like. And, um, you know, people have to be willing to do things a little bit differently if we want to get to a different result. Department obviously has been uh, right. I mean, we have defense innovation uh, unit, uh, uh, defense innovation unit. Excuse me, I was going to throw an experimental in there, and that's not on there anymore. Uh, everybody is talking about um, uh, innovation. You know, we we have now naval X, and uh, you know, in each command almost has their their own uh, mechanisms. Uh, at the end of the day, Scott, I mean, which how much of this is is working? How much of this is you know sort of getting in the way, right? Because um, ultimately you're trying to get great ideas or your product, right? Your services, your capabilities in front of the customer. That's the biggest challenge that this process can help in that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there were some who worry whether or not some of this is actually sapping bandwidth. And at this point has become theater. Ooh, ooh, ooh look how innovative we are. You know, we're, we're doing this thing, even if it doesn't really move a needle. From your standpoint, you know, if you were talking to some of the senior leaders, whether Dr. Shu or Dr. LaPlante, What's the grade and the advice you would you would give them about what's working, what's not? I think they deserve a B plus, right? I mean, I, I think there are tools that are in place, and whether it's OTAs or whether it's Sibbers or whether it's uh, you know innovative vehicles like the Tradewinds Marketplace that's coming out of OSD. You know, I think there are folks who are really willing and pushing forward to try to move things faster. Um, I'll also echo General Hyten's comments from uh, you know a few years ago that every tool that is needed to push acquisition forward at the speed of technology is contained within the federal acquisition regulation. It's just a matter of acquisition professionals willing to use it and, you know, understand it and, and, and move it forward a pace. Right. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the individual change agents that are, you know, within the different customer sets within the U S government. And there are some that are really, really pushing the envelope and doing some innovative things under existing traditional vehicles uh, to move things at pace. Uh, I, I look at the uh, PEO strategic submarines and um, you know, Matt Sermon and, and Whitney Jones and that crew, they've got a challenge of uh, you know, supplementing the workforce to build the next generation submarine. And I mean, they are, they're turning over every rock and they are using their existing vehicles and creating a culture and a community of kind of a badgeless team with one direction and one motivation. And if you've got a good idea, they want to hear about it and they will find a way to get funding to you uh, if your idea, you know, proves of merit. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's about people and it's about, it's about change. And, you know, I think there are, 
great vehicles out there, but at the end of the day, it comes down to people willing to utilize all the tools in the toolkit. So from your perspective, if you were going to put your finger on this, right, um, what are the biggest challenges that you need to overcome given where you are, right? I mean, this is an interdisciplinary problem. You have to have the capital lined up. Um, you know, thankfully, I'm going to ask you more specifically about capital in a minute. I'm going to ask you more specifically about technology. You know, is it is it getting the attention? Is it getting the contract vehicle? What 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 you know? Get, is it getting you know the big off your back that wants to beat your brains out? I mean, what is it? Right. I mean, because you know you see opportunity, but you may up, upset somebody's risk averse apple cart that's much higher up the stream. Right. Sure. So our, our system is not necessarily as incentivized for change. I'm not being critical of the bigs. You know, they've got a lot of shareholders they have to deliver. And if that means selling the mousetrap they have, as opposed to being unsettled by a new mousetrap, I've got that. But from your standpoint, what are sort of the biggest challenges that you face? I, I think a, a lot of it has to do with the access to talent. Right. I mean, from a capital marketplace standpoint, we've been in a in a world of cheap debt for, you know, going on two decades. And, you know, I think things are inching up a little bit, but you know, we we have yet to 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 reach a cliff where I see that falling off anytime soon. But access to talent, especially in a post-COVID environment, is uh is really, I think, the the number one block that we've got to uh, you know, to get to the next step. And, you know, that that can be improved in a number of ways, right? I mean, the, the biggest problem that I see every day in trying to bring folks onto the team, especially uh, you know, that's uh, cyber engineers and uh dev, you know, developers and and that sort of thing is uh is the work environment. Right. And, you know, the, the, the tools and, and the, the toolkits that, you know, DOD has sometimes are a little bit behind what they're used to from a, from a customer experience standpoint. But more importantly, from a work environment, everybody now is trying to work from home. And I think, you know, it, especially in the post-COVID environment. Right. Trying to recruit folks to come work here and you got to be in a certain place at a certain time for a certain duration. Um, that's, uh, you know, getting to be an antiquated model. So how can we on the industry and the government side relook at what those, uh, you know, what those requirements are? And, you know, in a classified environment, I think it's one thing, but in a, in an unclassified environment, uh, you know, I think we really need to take a look at, at what that looks like, or we're not going to be able to recruit that talent. They're going to continue to, uh, to, to, to uh, squeeze out into the, into the commercial space, into the other spheres, right? I, I've never really had anybody come back to me from a, from a salary standpoint, right? I mean, again, the, the money is there and we're able to pay people. And I think even the government uh, from, a, from a rate standpoint understands what it costs to get that work done. Uh, it's, a, it's a quality of life and it's a work environment issue that, that, that I face every day, bringing new people into the company. And, and how are you guys uh, overcoming that, right? I mean, tech companies uh, are getting rid of talent, right? So friends of mine in the defense sector have said, look, this is a you know, tremendous time of opportunity here uh, in terms of some of the talent that, you know, especially some of the scientific engineering cyber talent that's uh, going on the market. How are you guys overcoming some of that? Because there is not just a generational change, but right in the wake of a pandemic, a fundamental priority shift for for people. Sure. And, and, you know, at where we are at Stratus Corp and where I came from at Accenture, you know, it was both, both of those places are very much a work where you need to work environment. Right. And I think there are a lot of folks who are, who are looking at that, but some folks are, are, are a little slower to embrace that. And uh, that, that, you know, I, I think there's just that comfort of being able to 
come out of your office and see your see your workforce and doing diligent things. Uh, but you know, I, I think it's a challenge to to uh, management and leadership to understand that you hire good people and you, you you give them a task and you give them an objective. And you know, if if they're happier, they're more comfortable. Uh, you know, and they have the tools to do their job. I think they're gonna uh, they're gonna exceed your expectations almost every time, right? I mean, again, with the data that that we work with in the defense environment, it's, we have to be more sensitive and we have to be more critical. But at the same time, I, I think we need to really ask hard questions about what we're doing. That that's that's what we've done at Stratascorp. And if it uh, you know if it makes sense and it's uh, you know it's and, it, and and the customer is okay with with what that looks like, then you know if if, if you're gonna be more productive at two in the morning in your basement then, you know, you do your thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you be you. Um, let me uh, ask uh, one last uh, capital uh, question, if I may. Dr. Shu is setting up this fund uh, in order to help companies uh, that may have good ideas but are unable to raise capital. For some people, that's an oxymoron. There's more capital than good ideas. So usually uh, capital is not big of a challenge. And there's a concern that actually there might be some money being spent on uh, ideas that uh, might, might not be uh, that worthwhile, although a noble effort, right? She's trying to address a specific challenge. From your perspective, what's access to capital uh, been like? And what's what do inflation, right? I mean, we have a tendency of reflecting on inflation pressures on big companies. What about inflation pressures on smaller companies? You know, it's it's been interesting. I, I did expect, even though... Um, we've seen we've seen the inflation numbers and the interest rates drop uh you know r- rise over the past year year and a half and the uh i i, I did expect a, a significant slowdown in the MA market and and the uh and the access to capital market but I, it, I don't think it's really materialized right and unless something more significantly and and something more material occurs uh i i don't know that it's going to so you know, I, I think we live uh, in, in a great place where best ideas win. And, uh, you know, I think there are there are firms and there are people who are always out there looking for, uh, you know, the, the rock that has yet to be turned over. And if, uh, you know, if you think you've got that best mousetrap and you need to find some capital to get it out there, I think there are folks who are willing to take that leap with you. I mean, you have to have good plans behind it. You have to have solid strategies. You've got to, you know, give them a some sort of a some sort of a good feeling of a reasonable risk and the return on investment. But uh, from a, from, from an availability standpoint, I don't really think that there's a shortage there. Hats off to Dr. Shu for, for set, setting up that fund. And I, I, I hope it works and uh, I, I'm sure that it will, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm always a fan of uh, more of a fan of, of, of private capital markets and, and working there. Cause I think, um, uh, you know, I, I think when you have something to lose in an investment scenario, uh, you've got some skin in the game, and, and I think it, it 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 ends up in a better product at the end for everybody involved. Uh, let me ask you uh, very quickly. We've got about thirty seconds left uh, on cyber talent uh, in particular. You know, every every uh, year, um, as some of the folks on this program uh, have heard our our guests talk about, we we're ending up behind the ball when it comes to cyber talent. Right? We needed a half a million. We're not making half a million. Uh, goal and the real number moves to 700 million, right? And then it moves to a million and we're still falling short. And some people are like, look, we have to fundamentally change how it is we train our cyber talent because the way that we've been doing it uh, doesn't work and indeed maybe rely increasingly on on technology. From from your perspective, are you getting that cyber talent and are we growing the talent in the right way at the right speed to make sure that, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about people, right? Technology is terrific. 
the shortage of people drives technology, but at the end of the day, you still need qualified people, right? Are, are you getting the talent and do we need a different way to try to train them, especially on the cyber side of things? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And I think on the industry side, we're doing a better job because I think we've got more tools in the toolkit and it's easier for us to uh, adjust wages and adjust work environment and everything else, right? And, and you know, and, and it is on us, right, as, as industry to, uh, to manipulate you know, the, the, the levers that we can to make sure that it's a, it's an equitable and it's a good working environment to get the job done. Uh, on the government side, I think they've had a little bit more challenges and, and uh, I, I think that's to be expected just with the talent management structure that they've got in place. But uh, hats off to Sandy Radeski, who just moved from Fleet Cyber Command over to CISA. She has done a ton to get people excited and involved about doing cyber work for the government, while at the same time working to affect change in the civilian talent management strategy uh, through the Navy and, and through the Office of Personnel Management. So uh, there are people who are really trying to, to, to make change there and make people understand that this is not a commoditized uh, effort. And you know there are folks that, that do have specific skills and we need to find a way. It's not all about money. You have to make them want to come here and do this and that takes communication, and that takes it takes to your point training, uh, but it it takes a, a mindset of making people want to come do this and understand the mission and the satisfaction that comes with getting that done. Thanks very much. Uh, great having you on the program. Appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again uh, in the future. And in the meantime, fair winds following seas. Thanks, Vago. I appreciate the time. And joining us now is our producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy public affairs officer and the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm. He is also the co-host of the Cavus Ships podcast, sponsored by HII and co-hosted by our very own contributing editor, Chris Cavus. Uh, and each week they help clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. Uh, and they are both at West and are reporting daily from the show. Check out their coverage uh, from uh, yesterday uh, about Austell's uh, new facility uh, out there uh, in San Diego. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for joining us from a frigid uh, San Diego as we sit in a very temperate Washington, D.C. today. That's right, Baga. Thanks for having me. So day one's under your belt. Uh, another, uh, obviously, um, uh, today, by the time most people here, uh, today will will be over. But at the time we uh, are taping, uh, you, you guys are about getting underway out there. And obviously a full day of conference uh, tomorrow as as well. Uh, collaborative effort between AFSIA, the Armed Forces Communications Electronic Association, and the U.S. Naval Institute. Um, we heard from a lot of senior Navy leaders uh, yesterday, Admiral Papi Paparo, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, uh, among them. Uh, what were some of the key takeaways, and, and what do you, uh, and what should the audience expect to hear uh, over the next uh, uh, couple of days? Let's start with um, Admiral Paparo's remarks. He, uh, DTC'd into uh, the audience. Uh, he uh, was unable to attend in, in person. He spoke for about 20 minutes and kind of the big picture themes he uh, hit off with before taking questions from the audience. Um, you know, he extolled um, all the great things that PAC Fleet has done over the last year. Um, it, it was an exhaustive list. And, and, you know, he said he thought it was important that people know what, what they're doing out there, that, you, you know, sometimes they don't get to hear all of the things that they're doing with partners and allies. And that's the most important thing that, you know, it's only the, uh, the Chinese bad behavior, which he did not hesitate to call out, by the way, uh, which was refreshing. 
but it's only the bad behavior and the font ops that get the bulk of the headlines. And he wanted to go through all of the things that they're doing to build partnership capacity and, um, you know, really sort of stack the blue team, if you will, um, with, with allies to, to make sure that, um, you, you know, they're able to stand united against uh, Chinese aggression and, and bad behavior. Um, I, I would say a couple things that struck me during the remarks, you know, he was asked kind of the traditional, what are you going to do if they if the Chinese mind this or if the Chinese do that? He was clearly more worried about um, gray zone, bad behavior and cyber attacks, at least in the short term, um, than he was necessarily about them mining was the gray zone uh, behavior that, uh, you know, he really foot stomps. Um, the, you know, the other thing that he made a point of really beating uh, home was the fact that we are not ready for combat logistics. And he used a great example. I mean, he said up until now, better business practices have ruled the day in the logistics world as they really have across the military. And we need to get to a wartime footing and a wartime mindset when it comes to logistics. Um, obviously, something that would be very important to him uh, should competition continue to increase and God forbid we get to conflict. Um, so those were the big themes um, out of it. Bago, you know, I think very highly of Pappy uh, and I, I think he's the right guy at the right time out there at Pack Fleet, um, as are the other uh, you know, component uh, commanders for the other services. We really do have a fantastic team out in the Pacific. Uh, it, it, it is a, a formidable uh, team, uh, whether on the Navy side, the Air Force side, the Marine side, the Army side, and of course, uh, Long Aquilino uh, leading them all, right? I mean, at some point, uh, somebody has to lead the warfighting integration part of it. And uh, and it's a good thing that he uh, is focusing on pick, picking up on stuff that Phil Davidson uh, did uh, before him. Uh, yep. uh, comms, uh the type commanders uh, also uh, spoke. Uh, give us sort of a, a little bit of a flavor on what we heard from them. I mean, it's kind of a weird, right? I mean, the Navy is trying hard to get rid of the littoral combat ship at the time when all of San Diego is abuzz about how great the littoral combat ship uh, uh, is, uh, given that that's a very important Pacific uh, hub uh, for the for the ships. Kind of walk us through a little bit about what we heard from the TICOMs. And for those people who don't speak Navy speak and don't know what a TICOM is, a TICOM, Chris, is? The Navy type commander. So think in terms of ships, airplanes, information warfare, submarines. Um, so they are essentially the community heads out here. They provide uh, the manning, the training, and the equipping to the fleet commander, Admiral Paparo. This is a routine event that they do every year out here at West. Um, they, uh, Admiral Moran, Admiral Bill Moran, uh, was the moderator um, of the of the panel. I, I would say big picture themes that you know the forces have never been in higher demand in terms of um, numbers, but also in terms of capability, in terms of also new capability and new packages as a way of exercising different capabilities with our allies, like I mentioned the, uh, from Admiral Paparo's remarks, but also as a way of keeping uh, our competitors uh, on their toes. Um, I, I don't want to tout again our conversation with Vice Admiral Bill Galinas, uh, the commander of the Naval Sea Systems Command, but it was a very thoughtful discussion uh, and, you know, the importance of better contracting, better thinking through and the stuff that NAPC is doing to try to improve the throughput. They've uh, improved the throughput, but he also acknowledges that there's more work to be done there. And I think that's a, a little bit of what you're hearing. Now, give us a little here's bit the, of a... Yeah, go here's ahead. the only thing I'll say, though, across all of those TICOMs and, and actually hearkening to what you uh, talked to Admiral Galinas about, all the things that these guys and ladies complained about really are, the, are in their control, right? So, I mean, I, I understand you can't snap your fingers uh, and make things better overnight, but I mean, 
the problem and the solutions to the problems lie largely with the Navy um, and the Navy's ability to better harness. We heard in the first uh, segment what Scott Sloan talked about, but better harness the capabilities and the talents that industry um, is trying to bring forward. So, I, I mean, I do think that's an important message. That's what I heard from people as I walked around was like, hey, got it. You know, there's problems, but like you sort of own your problems. Um, we've uh, got a little bit of time left. And, and just I, I meant to say that when Admiral, uh, you know, about Admiral Papara and Gray Zone, right? I mean, the balloons, for example, that we're seeing, uh, whether it's a tall building or anything else, right? I mean, we've we've exhibited, as you and I have discussed and have mentioned on the program, a remarkable lack of imagination, right? We're like, well, they wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, if, if terrorists would use planes to, you know, destroy buildings and, and it happens, you know, they, they would turn features in the middle of the Pacific into, you know, uh, in the South China Sea into bases and they do it. Balloons, you know, uh, you know, they, they offer no capability over satellites. So, you know, time and again, you know, all oh, the Russians, you know, they wouldn't attack. So it's kind of interesting um, and, and important when a guy like that is driving home the message. Like we have to really think uh, more creatively uh, about how a very adaptive adversary is, is going to prosecute uh, stuff. Uh, we're, we're short on time. Two quick things. Thing one, uh, what was the uh, scuttlebutt on the show floor, right? What are people talking about that's important to them? And also talk to us a little bit about the new Austell facility. Uh, you and Cavus, uh, you know, went there for the groundbreaking, an important facility to try to support these ships, uh, uh, the littoral combat ships on the West Coast. Obviously, uh, two brands, one, the Lockheed, uh, and Fincantieri uh, Freedom Class, and then the Independence Class by Austin. On the show floor, I mean, as you led the show off with, I mean, I think there were a lot of people that were impressed with the um, amount of content and the fulsome uh, subject matter of that content on the AFCA side. I mean, th this show has come to be, it, it's come to be expected that the USNI team will bring the flag officers and senior civilians from the Navy and the Marine Corps um, and that they will talk about war fighting and the, th uh, the items that are in the headlines every day. Um, this has tended at times to be a, a bit of a wonky show um, on the AFCA side. Boy, that wasn't the case this year. I mean, you really see um, whether that's a, a kudos to AFCA, whether it's a kudos to the Navy information warfare community or both, they really have brought in, or, or to industry, they have brought in speakers and they have panels that are talking about technology as an enabler, as a contributor, as a leader when it comes to dealing with these wicked national security problems. Um, and folks across the floor seem to recognize that. Even the big primes who have been here sort of in the past kind of selling traditional Navy wares are doing a better job of demonstrating all of their business lines uh, consistent with that more robust tech theme that is uh, wo woven throughout. Um, I do, speaking of tech, I do want to give a, a kudos to a friend of the show and personal friend, Chris Cleary, um, who spoke yesterday, but, and, and this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart, uh, Bago. I mean, he really pointed to sailors and soldiers and said that, that not only do they need to be doing the ones and zeros when it comes to dealing with cyber threats and information warfare, but they need to be given the skills to fight propaganda. Um, and that, was something that really hadn't been said publicly from the Navy. And so there were a lot of people in that cyber world that took note of that. Um, so good on Chris Cleary for, for making that point.
Um, I'll see if you have a comment on that and then I'll get to the Austell part. Well, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you uh, more. And I think Chris has been one of these people who's been uh, trying to lead the debate, the discussion and, and the internal focus, not just on manpower, but also on investment, right? Whether, you know, he was talking about SBOM and HBOMs, uh, you know, software and hardware vulnerabilities before other folks uh, were, were focusing on it and trying to focus attention uh, as, as we've talked to them over the years. Uh, real quick uh, on the Austell uh, facility, and I should say that Austell was partnered with uh, General Dynamics on, uh, on that, just as uh, Fincantieri or, or Lockheed was partnered with Fincantieri. Give us a sense uh, on the new shipyard and what people should uh, expect and what it means coming now at a time when LCS really looks like it may be closer, <laughs> unfortunately, to being sunset uh, than a sunrise program. If you listen to Admiral Kitchener and you listen to the folks at Austell, um, LCS, at least the San Diego variants of LCS, aren't going anywhere. Um, Austell opened up a 15-acre shipyard that um, they purchased property or, or excuse me, lease property from the port of San Diego and from the Navy. Um, they are on the southern end of the, the piers, if you're familiar with San Diego. So sort of uh, if BAE and, and um, GD NASCAR are on the north side, closer to San Diego, this property is on the southern side, closer to, you know, uh, it's in National City, closer to the Mexico side of the San Diego Bay. Um, and they're going to, you know, the, the USS Canberra was uh, import. That's the first ship that they're going to do. They're hoping to do more full-scale availabilities right there. They've got a, um, you know, it's a hundred million dollar uh, investment that they've made between the, the lease, the land, and they've got a dry dock that's being constructed in Turkey that'll be here this summer. Um, so they they are all in. They think they can do, um, obviously, LCS work. They believe that they can do uh, frigate work when the frigates get to San Diego and then um, other maybe HME work um, that, that they partner with other yards on. So um, I think it's a good thing. You know, obviously, it's a good thing for Austell. I, I think it's a good thing for the Navy for two reasons. It increases it. Uh, capability and maintenance capability and capacity in San Diego. But if you're a sailor in San Diego on an LCS, now you don't have to leave your home port um, to get work done, which is a big quality of life issue. Um, they were having to go other places uh, to get the work done and this would allow them to stay in San Diego. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But uh, anytime uh, you can put a new shipyard in a home, uh, home port, I think that's a good thing. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, just remind the audience, tune in uh, to Canvas Ships every day for the great coverage uh, the team is uh, is putting out. And check them out also for the weekly program uh, and, and uh, subscribe to it. Chris, thanks very much. And look forward to having you on the roundtable on Friday. Thanks, Fagger.